The Holy Gospel of our Lord Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. We'll read through verse 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you, and I mean that literally. This is the last service. We had no electricity, and we were in the dark. I could barely see anyone. It's nice to not only be able to see you, but to have a microphone as well. So let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shankar Vedantam is a Stanford-educated journalist, and He has a short podcast called The Unsung Hero, actually my unsung hero. These are short five-minute episodes of everyday acts of kindness and courage that change people's lives. And recently, Sunita Kramer told her story. She's a working-class mom in New Jersey, and she had signed her daughter up for an art class at Rutgers University, where she works and to which she takes the train every day. And on the first day of art class, she had her daughter with her, and it was a very crowded day on the platform, and she was rushing through pushing her way through the crowd, trying not to miss her train, and half dragging, half pulling her daughter behind her. And instead of helping her daughter onto the train first and then stepping on herself, she stepped on first and tried to drag her daughter behind her, but her daughter tripped on the platform. And this particular train station, there's a large gap between the platform and the train, and her daughter fell into the gap. I can't even begin to imagine watching my child fall into the gap right before the train's about to take off. But she didn't fall all the way in because there was a man, a stranger on the platform. And as she was falling, he grabbed her 
and he threw her into the train right as the doors closed. And as she was lying there on the ground, immediately after that, the train began to take off and everyone was looking at her. No one knew that in just a matter of seconds, she had almost lost her daughter, almost died, and then had been miraculously saved. And to this day, she still wonders who it was, who that stranger on the platform was and how he saved her daughter. The next day, she took the train again and was looking around on the platform, wondering who he was and if he was there, because she didn't really see him. She didn't know who he was. And I wonder this morning, what are you looking for? What are you looking for this morning? The lectionary takes us to John 21 and to seven disciples who are looking for Jesus, but they can't find him. I wonder if you're looking for Jesus this morning, looking for him to show up in your life in a clear and evident way so that you know it's him. You know that he's there and he's present with you. And so this chapter here in John 21, it reveals how Jesus shows up and does that, how he reveals himself to us now after Easter. So two points this morning. The first of which is that Jesus reveals himself in our nothingness. And some of you are probably wondering, did Tim just make up that word, nothingness? I didn't. It can refer generally to something that's trivial or unimportant or inconsequential, which fits with this passage. Because maybe you heard Peter say, I'm going fishing, as if there was nothing else to do. It's not like he really wanted to do it. It was obligatory for him. It's all that he had to do, and so he does it. And maybe that's the way that you feel this morning about something, about your job. You don't really want to do it. You have to do it. It doesn't bring you much joy, delight, but you do it. Or maybe your marriage is like that this morning, or being a parent. Your friends are like that. They feel trivial, your friendships, that you keeping up the same social calendar and the same calendar of various vocations and the party schedule, and you're just thinking, I'm going fishing again. It worries you that maybe your life has become trivial and inconsequential. Nothingness can refer to that. It can also have a more philosophical meaning. There's a long history of it referring to a state of non-existence, especially with existentialist philosophy and John Paul Sartre in particular. For him, it simply refers to the time in which you cease to exist. This past Monday, I had the privilege of preaching at Regent School of Austin, just down the road to the high school students. And I read them this excerpt from Isaac Jacobson's biography on Steve Jobs. I think I read it here a number of years ago. But Steve Jobs says this, he said this, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt there must be something more to existence than meets the eye. He had said that. He admitted, though, that as he faced death, he might be overestimating the odds out of a desire to believe in an afterlife. He said, it's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom, and then it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, maybe your consciousness. He then fell silent for a very long time and said, but on the other hand, Perhaps it's like an on-off switch, click, and you're gone. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. I actually said it, and that's nothingness in a final philosophical sense. And I wonder how many of you worry about that, like Steve Jobs did as he was about to die from pancreatic cancer. John here addresses both, because for him, nothingness is lifelessness. And this is John's epilogue. It's the story after the story, where you find out everything that has happened after the fact to all the characters in the story. Harry Potter, the final book of the Harry Potter series, it has an epilogue in children. Do not worry. 
I'm not going to run the epilogue of Harry Potter like Pastor Josh run the entire Harry Potter series for you last week. I saw you, some of you with fingers in your ears. Actually, I've run the Harry Potter series before, but I'm not going to do that with the epilogue. But just know that in the epilogue, you find out everything that happens to Hermione and to Harry and to Ron and to Draco and, and to Jenny. You find out the story after the story. That's what's happening here, especially with Peter. We find out what happens with the rest of his life. But then John's gospel also has a prologue, and that's the story before the story, where you find out all the background details that you need to know in order to understand what's going on. And it begins somewhat famously. You've heard it even if you didn't realize it. When John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That had a a deeper, more profound meaning when I read it in the second service this morning. But you, this should sound familiar because it's the same words, the same things that John brings up again here. Do you see the word revealed in verse 1 and verse 14, the beginning and the end of the passage that we read? This word bookends the passage because it's this word in, in Greek that is phanerao, which I'm just trying to press you with my Greek, but it's phanerao. And really, it comes from the word light. And the only other time that John uses at the very beginning of his gospel, in the first chapter, in the second chapter, the prologue, and then when he reveals himself at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And so only times that John uses these words, light and revealed, as if light shining into the darkness is there at the beginning and now at the end, because he's wanting to say Jesus is still God. He's still the life apart from which nothing else can exist. And he's still the light that shines in the darkness and still... The darkness does not overcome it. And some of you need to hear that this morning because the darkness for you is very thick and it's very deep. And so don't overlook that the first seven verses here of this story locate the disciples at night, but not just at night in the darkness, but also at sea on the waters. Such an important detail. So very intentional by John. As I often tell you, the waters, the sea is the place of chaos and danger and confusion and emptiness in the scriptures, but especially for John, which is why he writes what he writes at the end of the book of Revelation. He also wrote that book when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Two out of three people who read that this morning cried, just so, just so you know. Sea was no more. Because the sea represents all evil and sin and loss and pain and death, all of it, all nothingness. And it will eventually all be gone when Christ returns, bringing heaven to earth. But here, now, the disciples are on the sea in the dark. And so too are you. And so too am I. It's before the dawn breaks fully and finally. Before Jesus, the light shows up and overcomes the darkness fully and completely. Jonathan Haidt recently wrote an article in The Atlantic. I think he, without using the same language, was speaking about the nothingness that we all feel. I wonder if you, you feel the nothingness this morning. The article that he wrote is entitled, Why the Last 10 Years of American Life Have Been So Uniquely Stupid. It's, it's a great title. It's actually a very bright intellectual argue, article, but he says this. He, he uses the, the, the Tower of Babel as an image, and he says that this is much like what's going on in our culture now. Because at the Tower of Babel in Genesis, God confuses. He scrambles all the languages, and he says that's what's happening in our current culture. 
He says it's not only happening between blue and red, but within the left and within the right, as well as within universities and companies and professional associations and museums, even families. Over the last decade, he says something went terribly wrong suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. And he places most of the blame for this on social media, which he says has significantly weakened three factors that bind successful democracies together. He says, one, that's social capital, meaning the networks of friends and colleagues and the significant degree of trust we have with one another, but then also strong institutions and finally shared stories. The social media has especially damaged the shared stories that we have to the point where we have very few shared stories. He says, for the active activist political right, the shared story is this. America is eternally under threat from enemies outside and subversives within, and life is a battle between patriots and traitors. While the shared story on the activist political left is life at every institution is an eternal battle among identity groups over a zero-sum pie. It's rigidly egalitarian in its narrative that's focused on equality of outcomes, not equality of rights or equality of opportunities. And then he says, we're all caught up in the nothingness that both of those stories and all the other ones create. And then he ends the article like this. If we don't make major changes soon, then our institutions, our political system, and our society may collapse. And I don't know if he's right, but that's nothingness. And that's John 21, especially at the end of verse three. Do you see the word there? You see it? Nothing. In Greek, it's this word, uden. It's an onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it means, uden. It sounds like a whisper in an empty room or an echo in an open space. And Jesus uses the word also in John chapter 15, where he's teaching the disciples for the last time. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains or abides in me, whoever stays connected to me and communicative with me and, and in relationship with me will bear much fruit. But apart from me, separated from me, like a branch broken off a tree can do nothing. Uden. The first part of our narrative here is almost a, a, a storied portrayal of what he's teaching there in John, in John 15. And I wonder, is this you now? Is this you? Is this your life? Look at your life. Examine your relationships. Interrogate your emotions. Ask yourself, what's the state of my relationships? What's, what's my life producing right now? Mind, body, soul, my time, what's it producing? Is it Uden? Is it nothingness? Because it was for Peter. So point two here. Jesus not only reveals himself in our nothingness, he also reveals himself after our failures. Did you catch what Peter does in verse seven? No pun intended, kind of a pun intended. It's supposed to be funny. Um, did you catch what he does? He throws himself, he casts himself into the sea. Jesus tells them to, to cast their nets on the other side of the boat in verse five. Then in verse six, they do it. And then in verse seven, Peter not only casts his net into the sea, he casts himself into the sea. He, he, casts his, he, he leaves his net behind, which I would say probably represents everything that his life has produced. He was a fisherman. A fisherman's net was his life. He leaves that behind and he throws himself into the sea and he begins to swim to shore. Now, why? Why does he do this? And why did none of the other disciples do this? And maybe it's just characteristic of Peter. That's why he does it. 
this dynamic between Peter and, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's way of talking about himself throughout the gospel. We've seen this dynamic between them before. Because in chapter 20, right after the resurrection, they're the two disciples that run to the tomb. And John gets there first. He's younger, apparently faster. He gets to the tomb first. He doesn't go in. Peter gets there and immediately throws himself into the tomb. And then in chapter 20 as well, it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved saw and believed. He knew there. He believed what had happened right then and there. Peter didn't. Just like here, John sees and believes when he hears Jesus's voice from the shore and he has to tell Peter it is the Lord. And then Peter throws himself into the sea. So maybe it's just that. Maybe that's just the dynamic between the two. John's the understanding one. Peter is the impulsive one. And maybe that's just who they are. Maybe. But I think it's more. Because Peter is also the failure among the disciples. All of them fail. But he's the failure. He's the one that denied Jesus three different times on the night of his arrest. And Jesus hadn't spoken to Peter yet. Not directly. He's spoken directly to Mary Magdalene and to Thomas, but not to Peter. And Peter's ready. He's ready for Jesus to speak to him. He's ready for Jesus to deal with his betrayal because he's felt the weight of the betrayal and the sin himself. He's known what life is like in the deep waters. He's been in the deep waters ever since that betrayal, drowning. He knows what life apart from Jesus is like, life at sea, at night, since the betrayal. He's tried to live with Jesus dead, literally dead for three days and then relationally dead to him thereafter. And so he knows what it's like and he's driven by it. He's pushed and driven by his failure and the suffering that's resulted, his own suffering, but the suffering of others around him that he's been the cause of. So he's driven to throw himself into the sea and to get to Jesus as quick as possible. And can you relate to that? You know what that's like. You need to. You need to. Because at some point, all of us have to get where Peter is in this passage if we're going to see and know the God of the Bible. Because Almost always, maybe without exception, getting to where Peter is takes failure. It requires loss. It involves suffering. Tim Keller, whom you all know because we quote him so very often, he's basically the pope of our denomination. And you may also know that he has cancer, pancreatic cancer, just like Steve Jobs had. He's had it. At least it's been diagnosed for two years. And back in the fall in the Atlantic, he wrote an article talking about how cancer had changed his faith. Just a few weeks ago in the New York Times, he was interviewed about the resurrection and how having cancer has shaped and formed, deepened his view of the resurrection. And one thing really caught my attention in that interview. He said, I now pray more often, but I also do it more longingly. Because what's really amazing is that when you know that you've got to have more of God because there's really no alternative, to our surprise, there is more of God to be gotten. And you say, why didn't I find this before? And the answer is, you didn't feel the same sense of need. And later he says, Kathy and I would both say that we've never been happier in our lives, even though I'm living under the shadow of cancer. Because, friends, Jesus really meant what he said in the very first words that we hear him speak in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 5. Do you know the very first thing that he says in the Gospels? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have sunk so low 
because of their failure, their sin, they've been crushed so low by their loss in this world and the harm that they've done or has been done to them that they're emptied out, completely emptied out, bankrupt, morally, emotionally, personally. Blessed, Jesus says, are those people. And why? Because like we see here with Peter, they will swim. They will, they will throw themselves in and they will swim and they will get to Jesus as fast as possible to know of his forgiveness and to know of the new life that he offers as a sheer gift. Failures throw themselves in and swim because they have nothing else. They need more of God because they've been emptied out. And when they need more of God, they find that there's more of God to be gotten. And so if you're not throwing yourself in, if you're not willing to leave whatever it is in your life behind, good, bad, otherwise, and get to Jesus as quickly as possible. Maybe it's because you haven't felt the inevitable nothingness of this world and your failure within it, but you will. You, you will. And when you do, will you swim? And when you do, please remember this, that Jesus has a charcoal fire in place for you, just like he does for Peter here. Because back in chapter 18, there was a charcoal fire. And that charcoal fire happened on the night in which Peter betrayed Jesus. It was created by the soldiers who had arrested Jesus. And there's Peter with them as one of them, warming himself by the fire as the light of the world's about to be extinguished out. The light and the warmth of the world is about to go away. So he's there by the world's fire. And Jesus recreates the scene here. He resets the scene because for Peter and for us, it's in our failures that he specially meets us and reveals himself, and also restores us. This chapter, in one sense, it's all about restoration. That question that, the, that Jesus asked the disciples, do you have any fish? It's one of those questions that's said, and then just kind of echoes and reverberates out through all the scriptures and our lives. Do you have any fish? In other words, what does your life produce? Look at your life. What, what has it done? What has it done apart from me? And then you hear this command, cast your net on the other side. In other words, listen to my word and submit to my word. It's an invitation to finally submit your life to him, to, to listen and to listen as James talks about, to not simply be a, a hearer of God's word, but also a doer. And then everything changes for them. That's when they know it's Jesus. That's when John knows. Once the net's been cast on the other side, after they submit, you can only truly know the God of the Bible once you submit and finally commit. And then next, there's this direction. Bring me some of the fish you've caught. It's an invitation to participate in all that God is doing in this world. And how dignifying, how amazingly dignifying to bring what your life has produced, what you've caught, and to join me in loving and serving others because I have already loved and served you to the greatest extent, dying on the cross for your sins and being raised. How beautifully dignifying. And then finally, it all ends with the final ultimate offer, which is in verse 12. Come and have breakfast, because that's what he's after. That's the end. To have these disciples here with him, near him. That's his goal for you too. To have you with him, near him. It's all about restoration. And with Peter, it's painful. It begins with, Simon, do you love me more than these? Because that's what Peter claimed. That's what he said. Lord, if all these others fall away from you, I won't. And then he did more dramatically and more publicly than all the rest of them. So do you love me more than these? It's painful. And then he asked the same question three different times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times because he denied him three times. 
painful. But I want you to know it's not punishment. It's not penance. He's not trying to punish Peter. He's trying to move Peter. He's trying to move him past his denial, past his shame, past all of his sadness and all of his loss, and to communicate to him, it's fully and finally been dealt with. It is done. It is in the past, so leave it and let go of it. It's as if he's saying, when I said it is finished on the cross, that included what you did, Peter. That included. It's fully and finally done, so let go of it. It's as if every time he asks that question, do you love me, he's trying to pry Peter's fingers off of the grip of what he's holding onto that he won't let go of. Every time he's trying to loosen his grip just a little bit more. And so too with you, some of you are holding onto something so tight and you won't let go of it. And so Jesus asked the same question this morning. Do you love me more than, do you trust me? Do you believe me more than all of that? And he keeps asking you so that with every answer you give, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. You might let go of that nothingness and that failure, which you've been holding on to for so tight. Now's the time to let go. Now's the time. Because here's the deal. You're already on the train. You're already on the train. Because Jesus is there. He's the stranger on the platform. He's already drawn you up. He's already rescued you. And even if you can't see him, he's still there on the platform. Even if you don't really know what he looks like, he is there. So keep looking for him. Keep examining your life. Keep listening to his word. Keep submitting your life to his word. Keep offering yourself to him to participate in all he's doing, to love and to serve others. And keep coming to Jesus's meal. Keep coming to have breakfast because you will see him there. You will see him. He is there. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will pour out your spirit upon us, your people, and even upon those who may not yet know you, see you as you're revealed in Jesus. We pray that you would do so, so that even as I prayed earlier, that we would see you and know you who is a friend and not a stranger. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.